With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. It's time for Home is Where the Haunt is, the portion of our podcast devoted to personal experiences with ghosties and ghoulies. Have a story to share? Send it in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. This is from one of our listeners, Cassidy. When I was younger, my two siblings and I would spend summer weekends away at my cousin's house. Their house was in this region that was isolated and full of farmlands. I remember one day, when I was maybe eight or nine, it was particularly hot. Their house didn't have AC. While the temperatures cooled down at night, it was still uncomfortable. I was sleeping in my older cousin's room with my little sister, and I woke up in the middle of the night because it was too stuffy. I decided to go out in the living room because I'd remembered that my aunt opened the windows and sliding glass door, so there was at least a breeze in circulation. I don't know how long I was asleep, but I remember waking up in what seemed like seconds later. Before I opened my eyes, I had a feeling that someone was watching me. I was facing the couch, and when I finally opened my eyes, I saw a little girl sitting across from me. She wore a dress that looked like it was from the 1890s and was brushing her long, wavy hair. She was a bit transparent, but had a gold tint because of the street light that was shining in on her. I blinked, and she put down her brush in her lap, smiled at me, did a little wave, and mouthed, Hello! I immediately shut my eyes, shot up, and ran back to my cousin's room. I remember only being able to fall asleep because I convinced myself that it didn't happen. When it was morning, I was the last to wake up. I walked into the kitchen where everyone was already eating breakfast. My older brother was in the middle of telling a story. Apparently, he had woken up in the middle of the night, too. He also had gone to the living room and was awakened by the feeling that someone else was there, too. He saw the same little girl and ran away just like I had. I freaked out and told him about my identical experience. Hello, and welcome to episode 104 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. The weather has turned chilly here in Utah, and fall is in full swing. It's time to curl up with good books 
and I have three new books of horror short stories to read and have already found some gems. The story for this episode, It Walks by Night by Henry Kuttner, is one of them. What do you think of when you hear the word ghoulish? Skeletal hands with shreds of skin reaching for your ankles? A horrible oozing face at the window? Well, you'd not be too far off. Just add an insatiable hunger for the flesh of the dead, and you've got your ghoul. Stories and legends of ghouls can be found around the world in many cultures. Let's take a look at a few. We'll start in Germany. Nachsehe. That's a really fun word to say. I'm going to do it again. Nachsehe. The Nachsehe, also known as the Shroud Eater, is a type of German vampire which features prominently in the folklore of Germany's northern region. According to the legend, it needs to devour both its burial shroud and body in order to survive. The word Nach may be translated into English as after, whilst Zerche may be translated as living off. This combination of words alludes to what the Nachsecher is, a creature that lives after death, or a being that lives off humans, even after its death. According to folklore, the most common way that people become Nachsecher is sadly when they commit suicide. It is also believed that occasionally, this creature is created when a person dies accidentally. Yet another version of the origin tale associates the Nachsecher with disease and pestilence. According to this version, when many people die as a result of a plague, the first person to have succumbed to it would become a Nachzeher. Next we have Soul Eaters. A soul eater is a folklore figure in the traditional belief systems of some Chinese people, notably the Hausa, H-A-U-S-A, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, people of China. Belief in soul eaters is related to traditional folk beliefs in witchcraft, zombies, and related phenomena. The soul eater is supposed to be able to consume an individual's spirit, causing a wasting disease that can be fatal. In other words, the soul eater is a cannibalistic witch. The Hausa believe that someone can become a soul eater by swallowing special stones and housing them in their stomach. The ability can also be inherited from one's parents or can be learned from an existing soul eater. The soul eater can take the form of a dog or other animal in pursuit of his or her victim. Another belief is that soul eaters are men who are cursed by witches and must eat the souls of humans to exist. After the soul eater devours a victim's soul, the victim disappears into dust. The Wendigo the Wendigo is a mythological creature or evil spirit originating from the folklore of the Plains and Great Lakes Native Americans. The Wendigo is a malevolent spirit, sometimes depicted as a creature with human-like features and glowing eyes. It is said that they can possess a human being completely. The effects of the possession invoke feelings of insatiable greed or hunger, the desire to cannibalize humans, and the propensity to commit murder. In some representations, the Wendigo is described as a giant humanoid with a heart of ice and a foul stench whose appearance is preceded by an unnatural chill. Here is a true encounter with the Wendigo related by a Cree medicine man. 
The Wendigo was gaunt to the point of emaciation. Its desiccated skin pulled tightly over its bones. With its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets, the Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from separation of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. And finally, the creature from our story, the ghoul. Tales of the ghoul circulated through the Middle East long before the 7th century spread of Islam through the region. Translations of these stories traveled to Europe in the 18th century, as did the notion of the ghoul. In the original Arabic texts, the ghouls of 1001 Nights were vile tricksters and ravenous flesh-eaters. By taking the guise of beautiful women, they lured, kidnapped, and ate lustful or unfaithful men. The original Arabic ghouls refused to dine on the dead, but other Asian ghouls were not so picky. In the Tamil mythology of India, a shaggy-haired creature known as the Pei, P-E-Y, sought out human battles to lap blood from the open wounds of the dying. Still, other ghouls emerge in the 8th century Tibetan Book of the Dead, which details the Buddha's journey through death. Here, in a dreamlike state known as Bardo, the departed soul encounters the Pastashi ghouls, fierce female beings with bestial heads and an appetite for bones and viscera. I found it interesting that there were more tales of female ghouls than male. So watch out. If you're on a date and the lady has glowing eyes and orders her steak extra rare, you might want to skip the goodnight kiss. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you're interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. Henry Kuttner's writing has been featured on the podcast before. He was born in Los Angeles, California in 1915. As a young man, he worked in his spare time as a literary agent for his uncle before selling his first story, The Graveyard Rat, to Weird Tales in 1936. Kuttner was known for his literary prose and worked in close collaboration with his wife, C.L. Moore. They met through their association with the Lovecraft Circle, a group of writers and fans who corresponded with H.P. Lovecraft. Their work together spanned the 1940s and 1950s, and most of the work was credited to pseudonyms, mainly Lewis Paget and Lawrence O'Donnell. Kuttner died in February of 1953. And now, It Walks by Night, by Henry Kuttner. Johann leaned heavily against a tall obelisk of discolored marble, his fever-weakened body trembling with exhaustion. The graveyard was a dim black sea, with pale slabs and monoliths standing in irregular ranks all around him. He fumbled with the slide of his lantern, and a white beam sprang out vividly, 
etching the man's gaunt figure in sharp detail. Deep shadows lay in the hollows of his cheeks and beneath his dilated, smoldering eyes. His face had an angry flush which betrayed the fever blazing in his brain, a fever that had burned away lifelong barriers of fear and driven him to this ancient burying ground where few would have ventured after sundown. For, as all men knew, a horror dwelt among these tombs, an ancient horror that had come down through the generations. There were tales of a thing that walked by night among the graves, so that sometimes when men came searching in broad daylight, they found new graves opened, coffins ruthlessly torn apart, and the bodies gone. Occasionally, one of the villagers would bury his kin in the cemetery at Kushchen, twenty miles to the north. But this was seldom done, since the horror had dwelt in the graveyard longer than the oldest greybeard, and a kind of hopeless apathy hung like a somber pall over the village. Moreover, there was a tale that long ago, in the year of the Great Plague, when all bodies were burned for fear of spreading the pestilence, Something had come forth from among the tombs and had burst nightly into the houses on the outskirts of the village. A dozen people had vanished without a trace, and at last, in desperation, the plague-infected corpses had been interred in the old burying ground. Thereafter, the village slept in peace, although now and then a lone traveler or itinerant peddler would disappear, never to be seen again. Still, as the older men whispered among themselves, it was lucky that worse things did not befall. But now Johann was driven by a fierce urge that made him disregard the ancient menace that lurked among the tombs. He had come for his wife. Elsa, his bride for scarcely a year, had been buried while Johann lay delirious, raving with the same fever that had proved fatal to his wife. Believing him asleep, his cousin's wife had talked too freely, and Johann had learned that Elsa had been interred in the devil-haunted graveyard beyond the outskirts of the village. His beloved Elsa, daughter of the ancient Uber clan. His beloved Elsa, daughter of the ancient Uber clan that could trace their fathers back through turn and toxis, the prey of the ghoul. Horror had lent Johann strength to leave his bed and slip unnoticed from his cousin's house, pausing only to snatch his pistol and a lantern. Now he drew the weapon from his shirt as footsteps suddenly now he drew the weapon from his shirt as footsteps sounded suddenly nearby. A man came into view in the starlight, gingerly picking his way among the graves. As Johann recognized Karl, his cousin, he thrust the pistol back into his shirt and let the light from his lantern flare out. The newcomer gave a startled cry, quickly muffled. Carl stepped into the wan splotch of light, relief plain in his pale face. Johann, I thought... What are you doing out here? You can't help Elsa now. Johann looked away abruptly, his mouth working. Carl put a hand on his cousin's shoulder, but Johann shook it off impatiently. It's your fault, Carl, he accused, his eyes dark with anger. You let them bury Elsa here, in this devil-ridden place. Carl made a placating gesture. What could I do? I told them you would not... I know. The resentment was gone from Johann's voice. It was only very bitter now. 
Our heads have been bowed beneath the yoke for a long time. Too long, Carl. Elsa shall not. She's been buried a week now. You, you have no shovel. It was true. Johann had had no time to procure one during his flight. He said slowly, I can guard her grave at any rate. You go back to the village and get shovels. Carl was silent. After a moment, Johann laughed mirthlessly. Bring the shovels tomorrow, then, he jeered. You won't be afraid to come here in the daylight. Stung, Carl responded. It's not daylight now. Come home, Johann. We can get Elsa tomorrow. One more night won't... It's dangerous, Johann. They say that... They say it's been walking again. Johann shrugged with a nonchalance he did not feel. He was shivering in the chill wind that blew over the neglected graves. His fears, forgotten in his delirium, were slowly creeping back to torment him, but he pushed them resolutely aside. "'I'm not afraid,' he growled, and moved forward among the graves, his lantern sending out a beam of yellow light that rested on lichen-stained stone and the worm-eaten and weathered surface of wooden slabs and crosses. Once he tripped over a fallen tombstone, half-buried in the ground, and would have fallen had Carl not caught him. Carl began a frantic protest which his cousin did not hear. Johann was staring intently into the gloom. He took a few hasty steps, and at his feet loomed the black gulf of an open grave. He sent the beam of the lantern darting down into it, and saw that the coffin lid was broken and shattered, and the sarcophagus itself was empty. Even before the light searched out the inscription upon the wooden slab at the head of the violated grave, he knew what would be painted there. Beside him, Carl caught his breath in a gasp of fear, but Johann merely stood silent, swaying a little, the dank wind blowing coldly across his wet face, and his thoughts were a chaotic swirl in which horror and grief and anger were mingled. Out of his poignant grief and his horror, fierce anger racked his feverish brain with surges of red rage that shook him with their intensity. Under his shirt he felt the bulk of the pistol, and he gripped it fiercely. Elsa, her slim white body, the prey of the ghoul. Suddenly all Johann's fear was forgotten in his blinding, overwhelming anger. Carl was tugging at his arm. He turned to meet his cousin's frightened gaze. Johann, what are you waiting for? We can't stay here. It has walked again. No! Johann barked out the word fiercely, his eyes blazing. Elsa! It's too late, Johann. Elsa is gone. Is it too late for vengeance? Johann asked quietly. And at his words, Carl shrank back, stark amazement in his face. Vengeance? He whispered the word fearfully. A shudder racked him. He shot an apprehensive glance into the dimness about them. Then he said, still whispering, You are mad, Johann. Deliberately, Johann drew out his pistol. Very well, I am mad. But, Carl, if it was your wife... He broke off, his lips twitching, and when he resumed, his voice was chill with inflexible purpose. Listen to me, Carl. I'm going to make someone, God, man of the devil, suffer for this crime. He glanced at the black gulf of the violated grave. So go home, Carl. You can't help me now. Carl opened his mouth, but the words died in his throat. His eyes flashed past Johann's shoulder, and then into them sprang a look of panic fear. 
With a strangled scream, he spun about and went racing off, his footsteps as quietingly loud in the chill, empty silence. Johann turned quickly. At first he saw nothing in the dim starlight. Then, far away, he saw a faint movement among the tombs. There was a flicker of motion in the distance where an ancient mausoleum stood all alone on the side of a little hillock. He waited, scarcely breathing for a time, but there was no further movement at the distant tomb. Carl's footsteps had died away, and there was not a sound to be heard. Johann fingered the pistol irresolutely. Then he thrust it back in his shirt and hurriedly made his way among the graves to where the mausoleum stood on the knoll, pale and ominous in the starlight. The tomb was incredibly ancient and weathered, overgrown with a thick coating of lichen that draped it like gray spider webs. There was an inscription above the door, but save for the single word Maranatha, it was illegible. Johann did not pause to examine it after he saw that the great stone portal was open. With cold rage surging within him, he stepped over the threshold and set the light darting about the tomb. But it was empty. Bare granite walls met his gaze, but there was a door of rusted metal set in the further wall, and this was ajar. Johann squeezed through the gap and held the lantern high. He was in an empty passage, paved with great stone slabs, floating down into the side of the little hill. A faint whispering sound, like the slithering of water over jagged rocks, was audible, and Johann cautiously advanced. The passage turned and twisted in the rock, but it continued to descend steeply, and twice Johann passed the black mouths of side tunnels. Now the faint whispering was louder. He recognized the sound of voices, but there was a curious squeaking and snarling that puzzled him, a sound such as might originate in a nest of rats. The cold tide of sanity was slowly rising in Johann's brain, and misgivings were beginning to assail him but the thought of Elsa's looted grave enabled him to force them out of his mind. He replaced the slide on the lantern and moved forward in utter darkness, feeling his way and straining to distinguish an intelligible word from the babble of chatterings and whisperings that he heard. Slowly he advanced, sliding his hand along the wall, and suddenly a voice sounded distinct and clear above the sly mutterings. It was harsh and grating, possessing a curious quality of depth, as though it had come from far underground, and it said distinctly, It has been long gone. A wave of fear came rushing up to overwhelm Johann, and he clung desperately to the thought of Elsa and his vengeance. Fighting back his horror, he edged forward, and as though at a signal, a sudden silence fell. Johann caught a whisper, We'll be back to bring us food. Behind him there was a rustling, swiftly growing louder. In the blackness nothing was visible, but Johann flung himself flat against the wall. The rustling swept past him, and for a moment an overpowering stench filled his nostrils. He was conscious that something had passed close to him, something he could not see for the darkness, although he felt sick and giddy with its passing. He leaned against the wall, grateful for its support, and the whisperings and shrillings broke out afresh, this time with an eerie note of disappointment. A new voice spoke, a quiet, emotionless voice with a dreadful feline purr in it. 
No food could I find my ancestors. No food or drink. Must we go hungry? Another voice whined, and a plaintive series of cries burst from the grim darkness that pulsed with unseen horrific life. You must feed us. It's your duty. We are unable. A deeper voice spoke. You must fulfill your trust. Each of us fed our ancestors who could not feed themselves, and it is your duty to find us food. When in time you too become like us, unable to go forth to search out new graves, you will expect the next heir to fulfill his duty. I found food for you two nights ago, the other voice purred, and Johann caught his breath and shuddered in the shielding darkness. It is your trust and privilege, the deep voice cut in, brittle and harsh. This is the curse and blessing of our blood that knows no other life after death. But there are so many, and a stifled gasp of fear fell from Johann's stiff lips. A taut silence fell, and the man turned to ice. Past him went a soft rustling, almost brushing his numb body, swiftly dying away. Then there was no sound, only the charnel darkness that pressed silently upon him, and behind him he heard a heavy thud. Stung into life, Johann spun around and in an agony of fear went racing back through the twisted corridor, back to the open air and the clean starlight. He felt a heavy blow on his chest and staggered back, almost falling, the lantern slipping from his grasp and thudding to the ground. As he tottered there in the blackness, he heard the abominable rustling go past him again and fade into silence. Gasping, uttering little moans, he fell on his hands and knees, groping frantically for the lantern. For a moment it eluded his clutching fingers, and Johann felt the skin on his back crawling with the expectation of an attack. Then, with a sob of relief, he found the lantern and snatched off the slide, praying it had not gone out. It had not. A yellow beam of light pitilessly illuminated the thing that halted Johann's flight, the great door in the tomb, the door by which he had entered this Kimmeron cave of night and horror. But now, it was no longer ajar. He realized what had happened, the rustling that had passed him, the heavy thud. The creature, Johann dared not give it a name, had slipped past him and closed the door to prevent his escape. Breathing heavily, Johann put down the lantern and examined the door. There were no handles or knobs. It was a bare, riveted, studded plate of rusty metal. He braced his shoulder against it and strained until his head swam, but he could not move the door. Again, swift anger built inside him, and the thought of Elsa supplied the spark to the tinderbox of his fury. With rage and fear battling within him, he drew out his pistol, examined it to see if the moisture of the vault had dampened the charge, and slowly began to retrace his steps. He paused occasionally to flash the light behind him, but nothing lurked at his heels, nothing but the black tunnel mouths that seemed to watch him ominously. And presently he saw that he was on the threshold of an archway that led into silent, unstirring darkness. Twice Johann went forward, and twice he retreated in fear. At last he raised his pistol and stepped over the threshold, swiftly flashing the light about the great vault in which he stood. For a moment he thought he was confronting an array of mummies, withered and dry. 
They were lying against the walls in grotesque postures, a dozen brown wrinkled bodies, some of them merely skeletons with wrinkled dark skin stretched over their bones. The floor was buried beneath a carpet of bones, ranging in color from crumbled black to shining white bones on which the marks of gnawing were dreadfully evident. At Johann's feet a skull grinned up at him in a grim mockery of mirth. As a light gleamed through the tomb, a frightful rustling and stir went over the withered bodies. There was a monstrous shifting and squirming, and Johann saw moving what should never move, what should always lie silent and still and dead under the coffin lid. The things crawled about like maggots blindly creeping away from the light, and Johann still stood there, the lantern in one hand and his pistol in the other, without moving a muscle or turning his eyes from the charnel horror before him. The light gleamed on cold, shiny eyes, staring back at him speculatively. Behind him came the rustling, and Johann swung about, his light stabbing out through the blackness. Far down the passage, a vague figure was moving toward him, slowly, implacably. Behind him came an outburst of abominable squeakings and whistlings. Johann jerked up his pistol, the thought of Elsa steadying his hand. He would wait until the thing was almost upon him, and then... But his fear betrayed him. The crash of the explosions sent sharp echoes rolling through the vault. The dreadful form did not pause. It glided onward, silently save for the faint rustling of garments, and Johann took a step back. Something clutched at his ankle, and in a frenzy of fear he kicked free. For a second he had turned his back on the half-seen figure that was inexorably drawing nearer and when he swung about, it was almost upon him. There was no time to reload the pistol. Johann flung up his arm as though the lantern had been a weapon. Two things happened almost simultaneously. A purring, gloating voice came from the dim form, and it said triumphantly, We shall not go hungry. And the light revealed the face of the approaching horror, and Johann dropped the lantern and began to scream over and over, Elsa! Elsa! I've thought many times how much I would love to go explore some catacombs or one of those big vaults with different rooms with lots of people buried in them. And then I read a story like this and think, hmm, perhaps not. I'd be listening to every little noise and always looking back over my shoulder. I have no desire to be some ghoulish snack. Don't forget about our Nursery Rhyme Rewrite event. Take a nursery rhyme and rewrite it and make it creepy. You can send it in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com or post it on the Facebook page. It's not a contest, and I'll read any of them that get sent in on the Halloween episode. Thank you so much for listening to Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard 
never dies. Thank you.